Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for welcoming our family to um, be members here at New Branch Community Church. We love being a part of you and what God is doing here, so we're very grateful um, to be counted among you as family. So it's no surprise to you this morning is a day that we call Father's Day. Um, As Father's Day, this is one day uh, a year that we set aside um, to honor our dads. Uh, And so this could be one of those days that um, brings great joy uh, to many families because perhaps maybe you have a wonderful father and you've had a great example um, in your home leading you and and loving you and showing you uh, the scriptures and giving you a good picture in, uh, in in some sense of what God might be like as your father. And so in that sense, you are having a great day being able to honor your dad and to do that. And perhaps maybe that's not the case. Maybe, maybe you have uh, a different experience growing up, and your dad maybe was more absent. He just really wasn't there. Maybe he was in the home, but maybe he was absent spiritually. Maybe he was just absent in general, just kind of pouring into your life emotionally and just being there. And so maybe this day is a day you know, that's kind of a little bit painful and, and hurtful, and I, I don't want to um, assume, uh, assume anything. At the same time, there might be others that are here this morning too, like myself, uh, and they would love to be able to, to celebrate their dad, but their dad is no longer here. Their dad has already gone on to, uh, to be with the Lord, and that's the case with me. My dad's uh, been with, with, uh, with the Lord for over 12 years now, and so I miss him. I, I wish I could talk to him. I wish I could say, Dad, here's your granddaughters. What do you think? Aren't they lovely? Aren't they beautiful? And, and I wish he could have known them. But uh, that's, that's not my experience today, and maybe, it's, maybe that's not yours either. Your dad is not here, but... Um, what we're going to talk about today is about an experience of knowing God as our Father. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, then good news, you have a Heavenly Father, and He's perfect. He is good. He loves you. And we're going to talk about that this morning. We want to talk about the fatherhood of God and our adoption as His children. Um, J.I. Packer, in answering the question, what is a Christian? This is his response. He said, the question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. I love that. It's simple but profound. He goes on to say, in expounding that, he says, you could sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name of God. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. If you, um, if you have your Bibles, and as Ken likes to say, and I hope that you do, turn in there uh, to 1 John, near the end of your Bible, right there, a couple books right before the book of Revelation. We'll be in 1 John. We're going to look at a few verses there, chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 is where we'll camp out. We'll spend some time there, and then we're going to hear from other uh, parts of God's Word as well. Let's just read what God's Word says here in 1 John 3 as we think about and meditate on the fatherhood of God 
in our adoption as his children. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this incredibly astounding truth that the Apostle John writes for us. And we need to just spend some time this morning and just try to wrap our heads and our hearts around this idea. It's more than just an idea, but it is a reality for all who have put their faith in Jesus, who have turned from sin and put their hope in Christ alone to reconcile them to you. God, we are sons and daughters, that you would call us your children and that you would be our adoptive heavenly father. And you are a perfect father, good and loving and wise in all of your ways. You are for us. I pray that this morning, God, that this truth, God, would come out in power, that through these words, through your Holy Spirit, Father, who inspired these words, and your Holy Spirit that does indeed indwell and fill me, I pray that you would use me, God, as a humble servant carrying your message forth. And God, may you take your word and may you plant it into the hearts of your people this morning and may it not return void, but may it accomplish the purpose for which you send it out. May you encourage, may you uplift, may you build up, May you strengthen, would you give hope where there's despair, where there's sadness, God, would you bring joy? God, I just pray for even those in this room that may not know you as Father. Maybe they know you only as judge and they fear you, God. May they hear something about your kindness and your tender heart this morning as Father that would draw them to trust Jesus this morning so that they might know you in that way. So now, Father, would you speak through your word in power? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to camp out a lot here in first verse for a little while. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. In the ESV, from which I'm reading and preaching from, it starts by saying, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. See what kind of love. We're going to get there in a minute. The New King James says it like this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. The New International Version says it like this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, with exclamations all throughout. I think that that carries the meaning of this text really, really well. And I love this word, behold, because it's not really a word we use an awful lot, but this word, the see, or this behold, is actually in the imperative. It's a command. It says, this is something you are to do. It says, behold, dwell on, think intently, put your focus on, ponder, study, give great attention to this incredible truth. What is that truth? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Dwell, stop for just a moment and think about this. This is almost too good to be true. We're going to see in a moment. It's not too good to be true. It's true. But it almost seems staggering like a house is possible. So it tells us to see, it tells us to behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. We need to direct our attention. We need to consider. We need to focus in on, dwell, contemplate, look into deeply, study, ponder, and think deeply about this. So let's take some time this morning and meditate on this truth that God 
calls us his children. What kind of love has the Father given to us? It says, see what kind of love the Father has given. What kind of love has the Father given to us? Well, it's a love that he lavishes on us. He's not stingy with his love. He doesn't measure it out. God is just gratuitous with his love. He just pours it out and heaps it up without measure, without being stingy. He just, that's the kind of love the word lavish. That's the kind of love that the Father has given to us, a lavishing love. But the kind of love that he's talking about here is the kind of love that we, human sinful beings created in his image who rebelled against God, that we should be called children of God. The kind of love that would cause God to call us his children. Behold, what manner of love. See what kind of love. It's the kind of love that God should call us his children. And we should be amazed. Do you not hear it in John as he writes? It's almost a parenthetical statement. As uh, in the first three verses of John chapter 3, is sort of like he's in this idea and this theme about what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. But he almost, he just stops and says, we just need to hold out and camp out here for just a moment. For three verses, he says, let's just dwell on this. Why does he sound so amazed? Why is John so amazed? Think about this, that you, God, should call you a child of his Are you astounded and are you amazed that when you read this, that this is true? I don't want to assume, but are you amazed that God would love you to the point that he would call you a child of his? Are you amazed? Does it astound you? Does it stagger you? Can you hardly wrap your head around it? Or do you just kind of take it for granted? Well, of course God loves me. I mean, have you looked at me? I'm pretty awesome, right? Or, I mean, he's God. He has to love me. And that, I mean, the Bible says, well, God is love. So he's got to love me. And again, I'm pretty lovable. Is that how we think? Or does it, we really need to get back to, oh, the reason this is so staggering, the reason this is so astounding and so amazing is because we have to not forget who we were. Who were we before we came to know Christ as Savior and Lord? Who were we before God adopted us into his family? This is what is so amazing. Let's just take a moment for, uh, to, to step back and think about this. These are some of the things the Bible calls us before we came to know Jesus Christ. It says that we are an enemy of God. That's pretty harsh, that we were an enemy of God. Basically, it talks about that in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, a condition that was true of all of us before we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is true. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've not turned from your sin and trusted in his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection to make things right between you and the Father, the Bible is clear that right now you stand as an enemy of God. You don't want to be an enemy of God. But this is true of all of us, that when we are born into this world, we are born as enemies of God. It says the Bible also talks of, calls us haters of God. And we don't probably think of ourselves like that. If anything, we might consider ourselves indifferent to God, like we don't even think about him. But the Bible would use this term of us in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 32. It says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we are enemies of God. We are haters of God. We're rebels. We're lawbreakers. 
when every time that we sin, the Bible calls that lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Well, where did the law come from? The law came from a good lawgiver, a righteous God who gives us a law, who shows us how we're to live in accordance with his character. But every time we see his law and his rules, we think we know better. We don't want God to have any authority over us. We know what's best for ourselves. We break his law. It's cosmic treason. Every time we sin against God, that's what we're doing. And so we're rebels and lawbreakers. Here's what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to this. And such were some of you. Now, he hasn't listed everything that could possibly be listed. That's just sort of a a list that just sort of is representative of some of the ways that we have disobeyed God and stuck our fist in his face and said, we're going to do what we want to do. We're not going to submit to God and bow under his authority and recognize him as the rightful king of our lives. We're rebels and we're lawbreakers. The Bible calls us idolaters. Romans 1, 21 and 25 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. We were idolaters. There's only one worthy of our worship and praise, only one worthy of the life of our sacrifice, and it's God alone, the God who made us, the God who saved us our creator, our redeemer. And yet, we would much rather give our heart, our worship, our lives, our service to things that were made by human hands. Maybe even things that God created, such as nature, rather than going back and recognizing behind all of it, the creator itself, and bowing our hearts before him. We're all idolaters. We're not God-fearers is another thing the Bible says about us. Romans 3, 10 through 18, it says, None of us is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we don't, we don't honor God. We don't respect God. We don't revere God. Many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us, I, I know that when it comes to my, my earthly father, he seemed to me a big man, strong and authoritative, but yet there was a tenderness about him. And at the same time, I knew he was for me and that he loved me, but I also, in a healthy biblical kind of fear, I feared my dad. I knew that when I had disobeyed, I deserved to get punished. I, I knew that that spanking was well-earned and that I didn't want to do that again. And that more than that, not only did I not want to do that out of fear of discipline, more than that, I, I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to hurt my dad. I, I loved my dad. I knew my dad loved me. There was a fear that I had for my father growing up, a healthy and good fear. This is a fear that we ought to have for our heavenly father, for God, for who he is, and yet we don't have it. The Bible says that this is true of all of us before we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so when he says, behold or stop, think, dwell on this for just a moment, the, what kind of love the father has for us, that he should call us children of God. What, the reason this is such a big deal is do you remember what you were? 
that we were enemies of God, that we were haters of God. We were rebels and lawbreakers, idolaters, and we did not fear God properly or rightly. And that God should call us his child, that God would welcome us into his own family and love us with the very love that he has for his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Amazing, amazing. Are you not amazed by that? And if that's not enough, another reason this adopting love should be so astounding is because not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone is a child of God. That's just the truth. That's just the reality. So if you are a child of God, if you're able to call God your Father, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, think for just a moment, that is not the, the case for everybody who has ever been born. That's not the case for your neighbors, maybe even some of the people in your own family or your household. That's not the case. This is why it's so astounding. Not all are children of God, and I know that we live in a culture, even Christianity, it sort of seeks in that we're just kind of, we, we hear that, well, you know, everyone's a child of God. God is, God is the Father of all people. No, he's not. That's not biblical. It's just not a biblical understanding of, of God being Father. God is the creator of all people. That part is true. And as his creation, we're all responsible to, to, um, to serve him and to follow him and to love and give him our worship and our praise. But not all people can call God Father. Not all people are known as children of God. As a matter of fact, because of natural birth, not only are we not children of God. Our natural birth actually calls us children of wrath. The very opposite. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And hear this, and we're by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we're not naturally born children of God. We're naturally born children of wrath, deserving of God's just condemnation, his judgment, his punishment. We deserve the wrath that Jesus received at the cross for us. That's what we deserve. That's our nature. So to think for a moment, if you're a child of God, if you've been adopted by the love of the Father, this is astounding. This is amazing. This should absolutely wreck you in a good way. Because we're not naturally born as children of God. We must be supernaturally born in order to be children of God. And here's the deal. John, Jesus said to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or in a sense, new birth, uh, the spiritual birth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're not going to look upon God favorably. You're not going to see him as father. You're going to know him only as judge. So we have to be born supernaturally in order to be God's child. And then supernatural or spiritual birth is actually itself a work of God. It is not something we can do or work up in ourselves. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, But to all who did receive him, this him meaning Jesus Christ, that's the context of John chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right, or you could say the authority, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, meaning we didn't become a child of God just because I'm born, 
You know, here I am. I'm a natural born child. Now, so I'm obviously a child of God. It's not what it says. And it doesn't say that because your parents were, and then you kind of grew up in their family, it was passed on to you. That's not what it says. You're born not of blood. You're not born a child of God. He says, uh, nor of the will of the flesh. Meaning I can't just say one moment, you know, I think it might be a good idea to be a child of God. I think I'd like to have God as my father and just out of my own choice and volition, choose God. It says, it doesn't happen, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not because of my choice. And then it says, you're not born a child of God, nor by the will of man. In other words, you can, you can't choose for me. Not, not only can I not choose to be God's child, Ken or my dad or my mom or my wife or my kid, they can't choose for me to be a child of God either. This is what it says at the end of chapter, verse 13. But, but of God. So let me read that one more time. John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if we're going to be God's child, it's not because we're born naturally. We have to be supernaturally born in order to be God's child. But Supernatural birth or spiritual birth is a work of God. It's not a work that we can do or anyone can do for us. It's a work God alone must do. And this work is a result of God's sovereign electing grace. This is a work of God's grace. It's a gift. Ephesians chapter 1, 5 and 6 says, In love he, or, or God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So if we're going to be a child of God, it's not because we're naturally born, it's because we're supernaturally born. That supernatural birth is a work that God alone does, and the reason that God does it at all is simply because of God's own love and, and God's own will and God's own purpose. It's, it's a gift of God's grace, and there's nothing else outside of God that should prompt him to do that except just simply his electing choice and love to put his affection on you, on me. So why should we be so amazed and astounded by God's love? Let's review. Do you remember who you were before you trusted in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to make you right with the Father? Do you remember who you were? Given that, that should, I mean, just like, how could God possibly want to take a rebel such as me, an enemy as me, a hater of his, and adopt me into his own family? Well, first of all, when he saves you, he gives you a new nature. That's, this, that's the new birth. He gives you a new nature. The old is gone, the new has come, right? And so in that new nature, we're being reborn into his image. So we're not necessarily the same person. We're a new person. So that that's happens. But then let's keep in mind that not everyone is also a child of God. And that's just a sober reality that we, we have to remember. Not only do I not deserve this because of my behavior, my conduct, my attitude, my heart against God, but also God in his kindness and tenderness, he, he, he adopted me into his family, but he hasn't done that to everyone. And then the only reason that I'm a child of God, or you're a child of God, it owes only and exclusively to God's sovereign grace. That's, that's huge. So what is the significance of our adoption? So during this, in this culture, you know, in the Roman culture, in this time in which these, uh, uh, these letters are being written, the practice of adoption 
was actually something that only or primarily uh, wealthy, childless couples would, would undertake. And what they would do is they would uh, find a young man of age, you know, not a, not a child, not an infant, like when we think of, um, of adoption today, they would find a young man of age who they thought was worthy and worthy to carry on the family name and, and become an heir so they could pass on what they had to, to him and, and keep their family name going. That's, that was the understanding here. So at the time of adoption, they received the full benefit or the full rights as, as sons and would receive the, receive the full inheritance you know, at, that, at that time. It wasn't something they had to wait for. Um, so what does that mean um, for us? Well, thinking of this understanding of God's adopting us and him being our, our father, it means that we did nothing to deserve or, or earn our adoption. The difference is... Um, in the Roman culture, they would see, you know, a young man who they thought had a character that was worthy of their family name. And so they're like, well, I'd be happy to, you know, to call you an heir and to pass on and share my estate with you because you, would, I think, would, would, would uh, represent the family well. There's been, um, you've kind of lived your life for a time and we've been able to watch you and we see character qualities that we believe in and can affirm as good. And, and we would like to have you as a part and carry on our family name. But that is not true of us, is it, when God adopted us? Was there anything good in us at all that God should, should say, yeah, because you've done this and because you're like that and you're not like them or haven't done what they did, you know, I think you're worthy of having my name and, and giving you my inheritance. Of course not. That's what is so staggering about all this. So God chose to adopt us motivated only by his love to make us his heirs and co-heirs with his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Meaning we bear his name and meaning that all that is his, all that is his, that we inherit together with Jesus. Jesus is worthy. He deserves it. We are unworthy. We don't deserve it. But for all who are found in Christ, who put their faith in him, what is the reward of the son becomes the reward of all God's sons and all God's daughters. Amazing. Now, not only this, but think of the immense privilege of calling God your Father. Your Old Testament. Old Testament believers could not conceive of calling God Father. See, God revealed himself to Israel um, with a covenant name. You may remember in Exodus chapter 3 is God reveals himself and speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. And, and God sends Moses on a journey to go to Pharaoh and, and tell him to let my people go. They may worship me. And he says, well, well, hold on. So if I go, will you, who am I to tell them who sent me? Like, who, who are you? And God gives him, uh, tell them that I am sent you. This is God's divine name. This is his covenant name. This is the name that he was to be known by the people of Israel in the Old Testament. This was a name that evoked just um, awe and wonder and honestly, fear. I mean, like, so <clears throat> this idea that God is the I am, the self-sufficient one, that he has no need outside of himself. And, and, and it, it really emphasizes God's holiness, his infinite holiness and his separateness from everything else. And so even in the worship of, the Israel, of Israel throughout the Old Testament, they weren't able to really approach God. There was sort of a little bit of fear in, in, in approaching God. And there are all these sacrifices and all these kinds of things. So in the Old Testament, they had no concept or any way to wrap their heads around calling God Father. They just knew that he was holy and that, that he, just the fact that they would call, he would let them be a part of his people, right? And yet, when you get to the New Testament, it's amazing. 
Jesus teaches his disciples to call God Father. His disciples even asked him at some point, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And what did Jesus say? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. They saw something about Jesus and the relationship that he had when he prayed that was unlike it. And they want teach us how to pray. And it starts with knowing your Father. You can call him Father. That's amazing. Not only this, but through the work of the Holy Spirit that indwells all New Testament believers, at the moment that you trust in Christ for, uh, for forgiveness of sins and righteousness with God, God puts his very Holy Spirit inside you. And the Holy Spirit indwelling you enables you, enables me to cry out, Abba, Abba which is an Aramaic term of endearment. This is a term that Jesus himself used in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew that he was about to be betrayed and he was about to be a sacrifice for sinners on the cross. And there he was in the garden and he's pouring out his heart, Abba, Father, if there is any other way, could you let this cup pass for me? You can see even in that moment, there is an intimacy, a closeness, an endearment. Basically, this word Abba is, is the equivalent in our language of daddy or papa. It's, it's, a, it's a sweet name. Father sometimes seems sort of formal and sort of, but daddy and, and papa. This is the name that Jesus used himself for God. And hear here what the Bible says, that when we have the Holy Spirit, that we too are enabled to cry out like Jesus himself did, Abba. Here's Galatians 4, 4 through 7. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, don't miss this, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, it was God who sent the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we would be able to cry out, that we'd be able to cry out and know God as our Abba, as our daddy, as our papa, that we would have that kind of relationship with God. See, it was God who did it. God wants us to know him as father. God wants us to have a relationship with him as his own son. Jesus had a relationship with him to know the affection, to know the intimacy, to know the closeness of that relationship. For it was God who sent the spirit of his son into our hearts enabling us to cry out, Abba, and Father. So we're not slaves, but sons and an heir through God. And there's a story of a missionary, um, I think his name was Ziegenbog, I probably messed it up, um, but who, and, and he tells of, of translating um, this particular text in 1 John chapter 3, and, and he had the aid of a Hindu young, young man. Um, and this young man, when he came to this part of, of the scripture, uh, he rendered this idea um, instead of what we see in verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? Well, when he got to that point, he rendered it that we should be allowed to kiss his feet. That we should be allowed to kiss his feet. Well, the missionary asked this young man, he says, why, why did you choose to do something different here? That's not, that's not what the text says. And his response was, children of God? That's too much. It's too high. He had no, he's like, I can't call God Father. We can't, maybe that we would be allowed at least just to kiss his feet. And yet, in case you might think for just a moment 
that this is too good to be true. John himself probably thought this was too good to be true. But just to bring a reality back on everybody, he comes back at the end of verse 1. And he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And he doesn't just stop there. He says, and so we are. We're not just called it. We're not just called children of God. We really are children of God. Can you wrap your head around that for just a moment? Does it not blow you away? Does it not fill your heart with great love and gratitude and worship and desire to honor God and live lives that, bring please, that are pleasing to him and bring glory to him? And yet we have to look at the second half of verse 1 because beyond God's love, being called children of God also means that we will experience the world's hatred. This should not, this should not surprise us. Jesus himself told us as much. Look at the second half of verse 1. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You remember back in John chapter 1, I think it was verse 10, um, he said that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Uh, they, they did not recognize him as God. They were not going to worship him as God. They were not going to follow him as God. They did not recognize him. They rejected him because he was not of the world. Brothers and sisters, Jesus told us this in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we have to wrap our heads around this. Because you can either be loved by God and be an enemy of the world, or you can be loved by the world and be an enemy of God. There's really no other way. So does God's, is God's love enough to make life in this world, life during your life here, uncomfortable, difficult? Are you okay and, and, and willing to receive persecution, whatever it might take, because you know that you have the love of your Father and it is far superior to anything that you might experience on earth because you're a child of God from the world? Is that enough for you? Is that okay for you? Is that, is that all right? You have to make up your mind because to be a child of God is to recognize the world will not recognize you. The, girl, the world will not applaud you. The world will not get behind you and celebrate you. Of all things, the world will do all that they can because they're under the power of the evil one. They will persecute you. They will destroy you. They will do all that they can to silence you, make your life miserable. You have to say, is knowing that I'm a child of God, is that far better than knowing, while knowing that things on the earth right now might be really hard for me. Are you okay with that? Is that enough? Is that good enough for you? Well, look at when we get to verse two. We've talked so far about what we are. What are we? We're children of God. If you put your hope in Christ, Christ himself has given you the authority. He's given you um, the right to become a child of God. Well, in verse two, it talks about what we will be. What will we be? Verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. It's not something one day we'll be. It's like we are God's children right now at this very moment. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So what are we now? We're God's children now. What we will be, there's a mystery to it. He says, we don't, we don't really know. It's not fully known. But we do know this, that when Jesus appears, this is a reference to his return. This is a reference to when Christ will come back again for us. And when he comes back for us, it will be 
you know, God's patience at that point, it will be too late for people to repent of sin and turn to Christ. When Jesus comes back, he says, at this moment, this is, uh, says, what we will be is not yet appear, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're going to be little gods. Jesus is God. There's one God, Father, Son, Spirit. He is God, fully divine, fully man. We will not be fully divine. We're not going to be even a little bit divine, no divine. But we will be like Jesus in this, that we will have a new, glorified, resurrected body. It will have a body that will no longer uh, be subject to decay or disease or death. We will not know pain anymore or mourning or crying. Any of that will not be our experience anymore. But not only that, the other good news, not just about having a new body like Christ, is that mean morally we will be perfect. Morally, we will not struggle in this body of flesh anymore with sin and disobedience to God, that we will perfectly and wonderfully love God and we will serve God from a heart of gratitude and joy and worship and love, even as Jesus did when he walked on the earth. We will have that kind. We will be like Jesus in that way. Wasn't that wonderful? This is a, I know right now I'm a child of God, and what I will be, I can't wrap my head fully around it because it's still a mystery. But I know that when he comes back, when he appears, I'm going to be like him. And this, I'm going to have a body like his. I'm going to, my spirit will be like his. It will be perfected in holiness and in righteousness. And I will love God as he deserves to be loved. My worship won't be half-hearted anymore. It'll be full and true and be aimed at God always, all the time. I mean, that's what we have to look forward to. That's what he's saying. That's what we will be. And he says, and this is going to happen when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We're going to see Jesus not as he was in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to see Jesus as he is, glorified, risen, ascended. In the fullness of his glory, we're going to see Jesus in that way. And Philippians 3.21 says that Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When we see Jesus in his glory, we will be changed into his image and likeness. It will be complete. It will be finished. It will be perfected. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That day will come. It won't just be a hope. It won't just be a promise. It will be fulfilled. We will be conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ when he comes and when we see him in the fullness of his glory. We've talked about what we are, we're children of God. We've talked about what we will be. We'll be like Jesus when he comes again. But verse three talks about, well, what should we be? This is what we are. This is what we will be. What should we be now? In verse three, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him, meaning Jesus Christ, when he returns again, purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, since we have this hope, see, the word hope, biblical hope, is not the way we use the word hope. We use the word hope today for just about anything. Well, you know, if my daughter, Trinity, would be like, I hope we have pizza for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because I love pizza. Like, she, she can hope that, but that's, that's probably not going to happen. But she can have that hope. You know, we hope your favorite team is going to win, you know, the, the Super Bowl or whatever. You can hope all these kinds of things. But Christian hope, biblical hope, is hope that is guaranteed, hope that is certain. Hope is to the extent, like, you know, it, it's already a done deal. You can go to the bank on it. 
It is confident. It is sure. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him. What is this hope? We have this hope. Jesus is coming back. What is this hope? When he comes back, we're going to be like him. What does that hope do for us? Well, in the meantime, it says, you have this hope. You have this hope in him. Then we should purify ourselves. That hope should purify ourselves as he is pure. And this is just a New Testament way of saying what the Old Testament said. Be holy because I am holy. That's what God says. I'm holy. And if you're my children, be like me. Carry on the family likeness. We have this hope. We will one day be perfect in holiness. We're not there right now, but if that is where we're going to be, if that's our destiny, then let's just get on with that work right now. Let's, can, let's be about killing sin. Let's be about putting on righteousness. Let's, about, let's be about taking the power of God's spirit and, and mortifying or crucifying the sin that still remains in us. Let's be about putting on the character and the righteousness of Christ. And let's do that in anticipation of this great day when this work that Jesus said, that the work that God began in you, he will, fu- he will complete it. It will be full. Well, let's, we're, we're a partner in this act of sanctification. That's where we are right now. Justification, we talked about is what, we didn't really use that word today, but basically that's what happens when we put our faith in Christ and God no longer counts our sin against us, but he gives us the very righteousness of Christ. He sees us through Christ's righteousness. He accepts us as his own. Sanctification is where a process where we're progressively becoming more and more conformed in the Christ image and likeness and glorification is what's going to happen. We just read that when Jesus comes back, we will be like him. Well, we're not there yet. We're in this middle, this middle place. And this middle ground means we need to work with God's word and with God's spirit in cooperation and be crucifying sin and be putting on the character and attitude and the fruit of the spirit and in the character of Christ. We are to be holy because God is holy. We are to live as God's children so we should carry on the family likeness. And why would we want to do that? Because we love our Heavenly Father. Because we love Him. We want to bring Him glory. How could, we, how could we not love Him given everything we've just talked about this morning? The love that, behold, see what kind of love the Father has given that we, should, that we should be called, of all people, that we should be called, that I should be called, that you should be called a child of God. Wrap your head around that. Why would you not want to live for God, bring glory to God, please your heavenly Father, and tell everyone everywhere, this is what my Father is like. He is so good. Aren't you proud? If you had a good Father, you're proud of your Father. When you were a child growing up and you had a good Father, you're proud of Him. You want people to know, well, do you want people to know your Father who's perfect and holy and righteous in all of His ways? You want to live in such a way that says, this is what my Father is like. There's a story of a girl who went out uh, one night with her friends, and her friends chose really to, to, to do some poor and bad, dangerous things. So the girl, when she found out what her friends were going to do, she says, I, I need to call my parents. I need, I, I need to go home. And so they started mocking her and making fun of her. So why, you know, if your daddy finds out what you're going to do, is, is, he, is he going to hurt you? And she's like, no, if my daddy finds out what I'm going to do, I'm afraid I might hurt him. See, that's, that's the heart. That's the heart of being a child of God. You want to live your life in such a way because you love him. You, you don't want to hurt him. You, you want his name to be hallowed. That's what you pray. Jesus said, our father, hallowed be your name. Well, let's not do something that in any way should look poor on our father. And so that's, that's the motive for living as his children. Now, I've got some application. Given all that we've read and all that we've considered in these three verses, they're, they're really packed. 
these applications are just representative. There's so much more that I'm sure that if you were to dwell on and think about that you could take away from this as well and begin to apply to your life. But here are just five, um, five applications. The first one is this. If we know that God is our Father and that we're His loving, His, His loved son or daughter, then we should approach God in prayer as a child appeals to their father. If you're like me, prayer can be one of those things you just always feel guilty about. You, you just know you're never doing it good enough. That's what you feel. Like you're not, you don't pray enough. You don't pray well enough. You don't pray long. Whatever it might be, you always feel guilt maybe about prayer. But imagine how different prayer would be if you really understood for a moment that prayer is just simply you talking to your father. Talking to your father. And what do we know? Think of a young child when they talk to their father. Is there anything off limits? Do they just ask anything? They don't know what's best for them, do they? But they just ask anything, and it's okay. Daddy's all right with that. Just, you know, that relationship is, 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 is wonderful. And so they just, they never think anything is too great or too crazy or too whatever. They just pour it all out, and they just ask, 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 and Father's okay. We need to understand prayer in that sense, that God is our Father, we're Son. We can go to Him with anything. God wants us. He invites us to come. He says that we can come boldly to His throne of grace, that we don't have to fear that we're welcome to the King's throne room anytime. Everything else stops. The child comes in. I want to hear what my child has to say. We, can, we need to come to Him in that way and with that understanding, with that meaning. Listen to what Matthew 7 says about this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. He says, seek and you'll find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he says, oh, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. Well, go to him. Pour out your heart before him. Ask him anything and everything. Don't expect that that God's going to give you anything and everything because God knows what's best for you. Just like a little child who will ask him, parents, we, we have some discernment. That's probably not good you know, to do that. Don't walk out in the street just because you just felt like, you know, chasing your body. I mean, whatever it might be. I and mean, we, there are things that we know we don't give our kids because it's not best for them, because we have that wisdom and we have that discernment that our kids don't have. But it's okay, ask anyway. Ask anyway. And let God be the one to determine what's best for you. See, God always answers your prayer one way or another. And he always answers it for you and what is best for you. So go to God. Think of God as your father and go to him as his child and bring anything and everything before him knowing that he wants you before his throne. He wants to hear from you. He cares about what's on your heart. Pour it out before him. If we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, the Bible says, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Well, moving on from that, what happens when God may not answer our prayers and the way we think we should, and we think we know what's best, and God chose not to give us this. It's kind of like when Apostle Paul, you know, asked three times before God, you know, I got this thorn in my flesh. Would you remove it from me? And, and then God responds, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, I'm going to leave that there. My, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. In a sense, I'm, I'm going to glorify myself through you in this. 
So that was not the answer that I'm sure Paul was hoping for. It's not the answer that he, he wanted, but it was the answer God gave. And it's a good answer. So when, when you go to God with this idea of prayer, also you need to go to him with an idea of trust. Trust your father. He's all wise. He's all good. He's all loving. Trust him. Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, again, in Matthew 6. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Can you trust your Father? Can you trust him that Romans 8, 28, when it says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, even those difficult, hard circumstances that God has allowed into your life, can you trust him? Can you trust that God has a wise purpose in it that we cannot see or understand? It's much higher than ours. Can we trust his heart, his love for you, his child? Can you trust him? He's wise, he's good, he's loving. What about this? We know we can approach God in prayer as a child does his father. We know that sometimes when God might do some things we don't understand, can we trust him anyway because his heart is good, it's for us, he knows what's best? What about when God disciplines us? Well, here's the third application. Submit humbly and joyfully to God's discipline. Submit humbly and joyfully to God's discipline. Hear what Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 5 through 10. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. And here's the purpose for that discipline, that we may share his holiness. Remember, that's, that's the end. It's the end goal. It's the end game. That when he comes, we're going to be like him. We'll be perfect. Well, God, even right now in sanctifying us, is disciplining us so that whatever circumstances, whatever things he brings in our life that might be difficult, it's for the purpose of disciplining us that we might share in his holiness, that we might better reflect and carry on his image and bear his image uh, in his name wherever we go. The fourth application is this. If you're a child of God, act like a child of God. If you're a child of God, act like a child of God. Again, we're going to return to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, chapter uh, Matthew 5. Verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
God is a peacemaker. He brought peace by sending his son Jesus to die and shed his blood so that there would be peace between us and God. It required the sinless and perfect life of Jesus, his death on the cross, to make peace between us and the Holy Father. God is a peacemaker. Jesus, our elder brother, our Savior, our Lord, is a peacemaker. Well, why should we be peacemakers? In the same sense that we would be sons of God. Act like our Father. Act as a child of God. He tells us later in verses 14 through 16, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they do on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Act as a child of God. At the end of chapter 5, he says this, verses 43 through 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors and, uh, do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, all the things that we see as far as um, rules for conduct, so to speak, that Jesus gives us has everything to do with our adoption, has everything to do with representing our Father, knowing whose name that we bear and whose name that we carry. Well, what happens as a child of God, and it's inevitable when we blow it, when we do act poorly, and we, we, look, we, we make God's you know, name, in a sense, um, we, we sort of drag it through the dirt. Well, here's our, our fifth and final application. Rest in the security of your father's love and your adoption as his child. See, there are times when we're going to be prodigal sons and prodigal daughters. There are times when we're going to demand our inheritance early and waste it on wild and crazy living. And we'll do some really bad things that don't look at all like the family. When you go back to Luke 15, I want you to see, we may act prodigal from time to time, but God, he doesn't cease to act as the prodigal's father. What do we see in that story, that parable of the prodigal son? Well, when this prodigal son has spent all his money and he has nothing left and he's had to hire himself out to feed pigs and he doesn't even have enough money to feed himself so he feeds himself the pods that the pigs eat. Finally, the Bible says he came to his senses. This is what it says in verses 17 through 24, Luke 15. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. What does this mean? 
that if you're a child of God, you're adopted by God and he is your father, he's a good father, he will never kick you out of his family. Know that we can play the role of the prodigal, but God continues to play the role of the prodigal father. When we repent, we confess our sin, we return to the father and we'll find that the father forgives us our sin, cleanses us from unrighteousness, restores the beauty of that fellowship that our sin has hurt. But we never, God never un, uh, unadopts us. He never sends us out of his family. What a beautiful truth. So as we close, my question to you this morning is simple. Do you know and relate to God as your father? Would you like to? Maybe, maybe you don't. You don't know him in this way, but maybe you'd like to. Well, Jesus said this in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. And that no one comes to the Father, or you could say is regarded as a son, except through me. The only way that you can become an adopted son or daughter of God is to go through Jesus Christ, the perfect, holy, only begotten Son of God, who lived a sinless and perfect life for you, for me. He obeyed God perfectly during his time on the earth. And then in our place, he, he, took, our, he took our place at the cross and received the punishment our sin deserved. God poured out his wrath on Christ there in our stead. And if only we would turn of our sins and trust that God has given us his Son and that God, that Jesus has lived the sinless life that we're supposed to live but could not, and he died the, the, the substitutionary death that we should but did not, and he rose again, then we can be saved. We will not have to know God as judge. We will not need to know God um, as, as one who um, will pour out his wrath upon us, but we can know God as father. We can know God as friend. And it all comes through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. I invite you to know him today. If you don't know him, I know Pastor Ken, myself, others would love to talk to you about him. Because Jesus is the perfect, only Son of God in the flesh who loves us as we sung and read today in the scriptures and gave himself for us. He did this for a lot of reasons, but one of those is to make us adopted sons and daughters of God. Would you pray with me?